to be mild podcast. Wow. Now that is what I call a powerful musical introductory tandem. The song we opened with is by gospel legend Kirk Franklin. And while the first verse we heard definitely touches on loss of life through violence, something we are dealing with very acutely as a nation right now, it is a song I turn on quite regularly for both myself and my family when we're confronted with moments of strife, both big and small. And the second, of course, is our banger of an opening theme, forever and always composed by SoundCloud wizard Ryan Little. Hello and good day, everybody. I'm Ron Cabuno, and welcome to what I am informally dubbing the Infinite Monkey Theorem episode of BTBM. And while that theory posits that one monkey, in this case, yours truly, hitting the keys of a typewriter for an infinite amount of time will generate the complete works of Shakespeare eventually, I'll be satisfied to get out of here with 30 minutes of competent and listenable podcast content. I think I can do it, so let's see. Uh, Pete's okay, not to worry, but he's taking the weekend off to tend to some personal matters. But for those who pine for the man's dulcet tones, we delivered a much-needed midweek show a few days ago. Because there's been so much to transpire between Sunday and Wednesday, we just had to do it. So please feel free to go back either now or later and catch up with that episode. And of course, tune in next week for his return. If you didn't catch our midweek edition, not to worry. I will be recapping much of what we covered then on today's show, as well as updating you on how those stories have changed since. So for the week of June 7th, let's get mild. Okay, so among the topics we'll be covering today are the president's actions and the extremely important responses to what transpired at Lafayette Square on Monday, and of course the protests, which continue around the country and have come to be more and more peaceful, but also more and more vocal in the types of reform they're demanding. We will also be discussing policing more generally, not just what they've done during the protests and to the protesters, but what types of systems keep them from punishment or more simply being held accountable for their actions. Plus, thanks to some antiquated thinking, Drew Brees gave us a reason to work some NFL talk into the show, albeit not about anything happening inside the lines of the gridiron. So let's start with the St. John's Church incident, or the Lafayette Square melee as I like to call it. Now, it's not a stretch to believe that this event will mark a turning point in how many of Trump's allies and supporters see the president with regard to his fitness for office and if he actually has American values at heart. It started with Defense Secretary Mark dominate the battle space Esper coming under fire not just for that comment, but for accompanying Trump during that stunt photo op, which required the violent and unlawful removal of peaceful protesters who happened to find themselves between the White House and Trump's creepy and prayerless little stunt outside of St. John's, a place that's come to be known 
through the centuries as the Church of Presidents. Esper has since apologized, and he said they didn't know he didn't know where they were going. And most importantly, he flat out does not support invoking the Insurrection Act as Trump has threatened to do. Now, the Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman Mark Milley was also walking right alongside Trump that day. But according to sources, he's the one who is most responsible for keeping Trump from invoking the act. Nonetheless, retired Air Force General Mike Hayden, former director of the NSA and CIA, said that he was appalled to see him in battle dress while parading down an American street for this blasphemous and embarrassing abuse of power. The last time the Insurrection Act was invoked was in 1992 under George Herbert Walker Bush, and that was to try and quell the riots from the acquittal of the officers in the beating of Rodney King. And guess who was the Attorney General at that time? William Barr. Now, the act has been used several times over the course of history, most of the time having to do with civil rights. It was used in 57 by Eisenhower to help integrate the Little Rock schools. It was invoked in 62 and 63, so Kennedy could enforce civil rights in Alabama and Mississippi. And in 67 and in 68, when LBJ was dealing with the riots and the demonstrations following the assassination of Martin Luther King. Now, W. Bush declined to use the act after Katrina, finding it to be completely insensitive given the situation. Probably a good move. The biggest bombshell came from Trump's previous Secretary of Defense, the universally renowned General James Mattis, and that he came out with a statement openly calling Trump a threat to the Constitution. Also, ex-chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Richard Myers, said, I'm glad I don't have to advise him. And the liberal but retired four-star general, uh, John Allen, said that the events may well signal the beginning of the end for the American experiment and that policy change will have to come from the bottom up, for at the White House, there's no one home. So there you have it, directly from the mouths of some of the most widely regarded military figures currently alive. And the blowback from Trump's authoritarian display extends much farther than service members. First, George and Laura Bush spoke out, but didn't mention 45 by name. And then, notable wishy-washy rhino Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska said she's now struggling to continue supporting the president. To which Trump immediately responded by saying he will personally go to her state and actively campaign against her re-election bid. Then, in what seemed to come from the Twilight Zone, even Pat Robertson of 700 Club Zealotry fame denounced 45, saying that Trump's law and order approach, quote, isn't cool. Yes, you heard me right. And most notably and lately, at least as of the Sunday taping of this show, former Secretary of State Colin Powell not only rebuked Trump's actions, but said he will outright vote for Joe Biden. I don't have to tell you how big of a deal all these moments are when added up together, but it looks like the bigoted underbelly that comprises an alarming but increasingly evident segment of the Republican Party is being dismissed and distanced from those with morals and ethics, ones that subscribe more closely with the constitutional protections that we've all been promised. What this means going forward for the party and the country is an ever-evolving story that is paramount to the reform of unjust policies across a wide spectrum of entrenched and established political and cultural norms. Which is a good segue into the next thing I want to talk about, 
which is accountability of the police. We saw earlier this week that not only were there charges against Derek Chauvin upgraded from third degree to second degree murder, but also the three other officers involved in George Floyd's death were finally charged, all with third degree murder. On Thursday, the city of Columbus, Ohio, said they were looking into the death of a 22-year-old woman, Miss Sarah Grossman, a recent Ohio State grad, who was sprayed with tear gas at protests days earlier. And on Saturday, there were charges finally brought against the two despicable Buffalo, New York police officers who were filmed so egregiously assaulting a 75-year-old man who was peacefully protesting there. Now, there are even reports from this incident that another officer out of the battalion that was clearing the area attempted to help this man back up, who was bleeding from his ear immediately after hitting his head on the cement ground, but that officer was dissuaded from doing so by the rest of his comrades. Now, this, this abuse of power must stop. It's part and parcel why George Floyd was murdered. And as we have seen magnified lately, it extends not just to black citizens, but to any and all that would draw the ire of law enforcement and challenge their disproportionate authority. So fittingly, we saw the Minneapolis police themselves start the conversation there and back it up with policy change. Two days ago, at emergency meeting of the city council, it was decided that not only are officers now banned from using chokeholds during arrests, but it also requires officers to intervene against unauthorized use of force in their presence. So no more standing around and hoping to hide behind the thin blue line. Now you must take action when you see your fellow officers committing a crime. And we've seen many, many despicable acts from the police officers in this country in the last few weeks. Luckily, we're in the era of smartphone video proliferation, or many of these illegal acts would have gone, you know, either as hearsay accusations or be extremely tough to get prosecuted properly. Uh, an article I read just this morning stated that there were over 400 media members that have either been assaulted or arrested since the protest began. And these are men and women whose job it is to bring us the information, often from dangerous locations, so that we may be informed citizens armed with unfiltered knowledge and be able to make honest assessments of the events that surround us. Time after time in these videos, I have seen people with credentials clearly visible or in hand and the police not care one bit and even sometimes seemingly singling them out purposefully. Needless to say, this is one of the most egregious acts of denying constitutional rights one can engage in in this country. So it brings us back to the question of who oversees the overseers? Crime is an inevitable reality in almost every community in this nation. We need law enforcement. We need our laws enforced. And we need those that do it to be held to the highest possible standards. One of the best initiatives I've seen this last week is known as Eight Can't Wait. But even it has deep flaws that I'm not even sure how to get around. So the eight can't wait stands for eight policing tactics that can either be eliminated or implemented to impart real change and by their research would decrease police brutality overall by approximately 70%. Now the eight things they're talking about are banning chokeholds and strangleholds, requiring de-escalation, requiring warning before shooting, require exhausting all alternatives before shooting, the duty to intervene, a ban on shooting at moving vehicles, 
requiring use of force continuum and requiring comprehensive reporting. Now, someone I talked to within law enforcement this week said the ninth should be constant recording of body cameras, which I totally agree with and don't know why it didn't make the list as well. Everything we're talking about these days is because of video bringing justice into light. It's the reason we know that George Floyd is damn near a clear-cut case as anything could be. It's the reason we know how mortifying and horrific the last moments of Ahmaud Arbery's life were. And it's the reason the cops who killed an unarmed Breonna Taylor three months ago have not yet been brought to justice and may never will be. Now, for those of you who don't know the specifics of her tragic story, she was by all accounts an exemplary human being who has become yet another victim of totally insane police tactics. Breonna Taylor was a 26-year-old black emergency room technician, and a judge issued what's known as a no-knock warrant, essentially a warrant that allows police to ram in or knock down a door SWAT team style without alerting anyone inside to their presence. Now, the actual subject of the investigation were two guys who were believed by Louisville police to be selling drugs outside or out of a house far from Miss Taylor's home. But just for good measure, the judge also ordered that a no-knock warrant be allowed on Miss Taylor's residence simply because the police believe that one of the two men had been using her apartment to receive packages. So when the police exercised this ridiculously unjust order at her home on March 13th and bashed the door into an innocent woman's home, her boyfriend, justifiably so, began firing upon the intruders to his home, who happened to be police officers. Breonna Taylor was shot eight times, and the three men have been placed on administrative reassignment. Not fired and not prosecuted, mainly because they were following orders, but also because there are so many miles of red tape between police brutality and justice. So getting back to the eight can't wait initiative, while their list of reforms and demands are both notable and commonsensical, as well as seemingly achievable, the group then goes too far in my estimation on what they're asking for in addition. They and many other groups around the country have been asking for full defunding of police departments. And while I touched on this a little bit midweek with Pete, noting that many of the wealthier departments in this country, especially the ones with low crime rates, are simply overarmed, overfunded, and those resources should be going to better use in other places. But if you're talking about police reforms on one hand and completely defunding them on the other, it sounds like you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater big time on this one. On Saturday... Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry, who in my estimation and that of many others, is a critical and pivotal figure in ensuring justice for George Floyd, was booed out of a rally after refusing the total abolition of the police force there, but stating, nonetheless, that one of the best ways to enact reform is to address the collective bargaining contracts that police unions have with their respective cities. There are so many reforms that need to take place with regards to policing and incarceration and sentencing disparities. And, you know, outside of the MAGA nut jobs and racist individuals, most of America is ready to make sure these measures get implemented. So I say, let's start with the first ones and go from there, especially while public sentiment is on the side of change and the rest of the world is waiting to see what the cradle of democracy plans to do to uphold the human rights of its citizens. It seems reforms are coming to social media as well, but some not as swiftly as others. 
This week, Snapchat said it will stop promoting Trump's posts on its homepage altogether. And Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg says he's considering changing uh, his existing policies around state use of force comments, which which Trump's Minneapolis post fell under. Now, he's been in a ton of hot water lately for not holding Trump's feet to the fire. Just this morning, more than 140 scientists doing research, funded by Zuckerberg and his wife, have signed a letter saying Trump uses his platform to, quote, spread both misinformation and incendiary comments. These criticisms come in light of Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey's decision not to remove Trump's misleading or lying posts, which would only add fuel to the far right's notion of Silicon Valley's suppression of their free speech, but to simply mark them with a fact check warning, which then makes them unable to be shared and widely disseminated. Now, that sounds like an easy step to me. Calls for change are also being heard from the sports community as well. As a proud graduate of The Ohio State University, I was heartened to see the entire team, as well as prominent past players, come together, black, white, everybody else, and stand as one through their social media outlets for justice for George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, their gesture did not go without some predictable backlash, and I thank these athletes for having the courage to do what they did. On the pro side of things, a change in tone came at a strikingly abrupt pace on several fronts. On Friday... The National Football League's commissioner, Roger Goodell, admitted that the league had erred at how it handled peaceful protests in the past and issued the following statement via video. We, the NFL, condemn racism and the systematic oppression of black people. We, the NFL, admit we were were wrong for not listening to NFL players earlier and encourage all to speak out and peacefully protest. We, the NFL, believe black lives matter. Now, no word on whether or not Goodell then picked up the phone to apologize directly to Colin Kaepernick for first denouncing his peaceful protest and then being either complicit or directly involved in the league-wide blackballing of him that followed, but probably not. This comes amid a week where Drew Brees was absolutely taken behind the woodshed from fellow players and teammates for trotting out the same old I hear your plight, but don't you dare respect the flag line. A line he used, citing his grandfather's roles in fighting for our freedoms during World War II. But he obviously could care less that black soldiers, fighting in the same war, killing Nazis just as bravely, then got to come home and back to the American South and sit at the back of the bus. Now, this is a popular line of deflection from both racists using patriotism as a cover and celebrities not wanting to stir the pot. My man Bomani Jones put it best when he said, charitably I might add, that Breeze was simply towing the company line, and none of his sponsors, such as Wrangler, or the people that consume their products, really care much to embrace uh, such movements as was evident by the absence of a public statement by any of said companies. And, well, wouldn't you know it, seems that the next day Wrangler did exactly that. And Breeze has been in full apology mode since, too, even though Trump wished he never apologized for being insensitive after the star quarterback began trying to right his wrongs. Another case in point where we see Trump continuing to be a divider in the face of someone obviously coming to terms with the error of his ways and looking to be a uniter, such as par for the course at Trump National. 
Now, there was tons of other news to hit the airways this week, but I would feel a little guilty discussing it with you without my partner in crime here by my side to have his opinion heard as well. To finish out the show this week, I'd like to talk about a topic that is very near and dear to my heart, and that is scleroderma research and awareness. For those of you that don't know, scleroderma is an autoimmune disease akin to others like MS and lupus. Scleroderma is derived from the two Greek words meaning hard and skin. This disease, which more often affects women than men, and commonly occurs between the ages of 30 and 50, is extremely debilitating and often deadly. Unfortunately, my mother was diagnosed with scleroderma over 18 years ago. And while I thank my lucky stars every day that she is still with us and doing well, there is so much of her quality of life that has been diminished because of the disease's effects. One of the major symptoms of scleroderma includes tightening of the skin due to an excess production of collagen. Now this can lead to severe joint pain, exaggerated susceptibility to cold weather, and heartburn. In more severe cases, and internal instances, the excess collagen will affect the functionality of the body's vital organs and can lead to cardiac and pulmonary hypertension, often with fatal results over time. But unluckily for the disease, my mother and the rest of my family are born fighters and activists for worthy causes. So 17 years ago from this weekend, we put on our first charity walk to benefit the Scleroderma Research Foundation. To date, our local chapter has raised almost half a million dollars, all of which has gone to research. And so, even in these times of economic turmoil and strife, I am asking any and all listeners that are able to donate to please visit www.boardmansdwalk.org and help out with whatever you can. And if donating isn't in the cards for you this year, I implore you, at least take a look at the information on the site. It is very possible that someone you know may be suffering from scleroderma and not know it yet. It's a complex disease to identify, with many people going years without a positive diagnosis, wondering what's wrong with them and how they can try and make it better. Organizations like these not only raise funds, but raise awareness. I'll leave a link in the show notes as well. Thanks again for giving Born to be Mild your time and mental energy. I know we are all spread thin these days. I hope all of you have a safe and healthy week. Hug all the people you can and let everyone that you can't hug know that you wish you could. 